Okay, I'm here with uh, Jacob Edwards King, and uh, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and I do a podcast called History Voyager. And why don't you tell us about your podcast? So I do shoe leather politics, and uh, like we discussed prior to this, uh, politics for me is a debate within an arena with your life around it. So a lot of it is about respecting each other, respecting the dialogue, interchanging and sharing from people. And what I do a lot of is history to bring people context for present issues. And so it's a cool. spectrum of different stuff. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I started off, so I'm going to tell your audience, I started off doing a deep dive history podcast in the Spanish flu, and I'm still doing that. But I uh, very quickly realized there were some haunting parallels between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu that were just too undeniable not to talk about. And in doing that, my podcast kind of mushroomed. And so that's kind of the elevator pitch for that. That's, that's some timing. Did you, I had to add, I didn't even ask you yet, but I had to ask, did you start the Spanish flu podcast before COVID? I was trying to look at the dates to figure it out. Well, well, here's the deal. Um, I went to the doctor, uh, after Kobe Bryant died. And I don't know if you remember, but Kobe Bryant died right when um, COVID-19 was in China. Well, technically, I think it was in America, too, but it was being covered as though it Exactly. It was being covered as though it was in China. And actually, the first time, as I recall, the first time that I actually really had a discussion with it about it was with this nurse in the doctor's office and she was like genuinely basically she was like freaked out and I was like I have basically I don't know how many years you want to say I I studied history but Jesus I'd say maybe at least eight or nine or ten but I don't remember formally, but I don't remember right now. But somewhere in the back of all that, I remember reading a couple sentences about the Spanish flu. And I thought I could do a podcast about the Spanish flu. And so I started reading about the Spanish flu. But I, by the time I actually dropped the podcast on the 14th of March, I think, um, you know, I had read enough about the Spanish flu to already see the parallels between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. So, yeah. That's some timing. Right. Some things are meant to be, I guess. I guess so. What about you with the shoe leather politics? I started it. I actually made, like, 30 episodes and deleted them all because I didn't like it after I started to get a rhythm. But I really started it having a bunch of discussions on politics with people and finding that nowhere represented my type of politics. Like I don't, very few issues I get absolutist in, like you're wrong, I'm right. To me, it's trade-offs, it's opinions. And you can honestly find with a lot of people that their life story is reflected in their politics. Like if you start to learn about them, you can place it. Or if you learn their politics, you can make some assumptions usually of where they come from, their type of life, their background. And so to me, it's always this 
this interchange, but, you know, I, I lost sources used to watch the daily show with John Stewart, common sense with Dan Carlin and those type of somewhat, I'm not, I don't want to say neutral usually, but things that were fair game across the political spectrum disappeared and it just became polarized stuff. And when I listened around, I was like, I could make something I think that's engaging and entertaining to people than I see out in the market of politics that aren't focused on scoring points, but having dialogue. Right. So I just started producing it and going with it and kind of, at first it was more like how government works, stuff happening right now. But what I found when I talked to people is that the history to link it to it is usually what I'm explaining. So, you know, you go back here and where it started and like right now, 1968, really controls a lot of the same conversations we're having now. And so unless you know about those events, it's hard to talk about now because we're in the footsteps of those events. We just haven't solved them or overcome them. And so now I kind of mix back and forth with history, and then I can leap back to it. And then my background is also economics, so I spent some time with the Great Depression. And now when people see economic stuff, I've got people who listen to those episodes familiar with the basic economic concepts, and I can talk about stuff pretty easily without having to – have an intro to economics every time I bring it up. It's funny, like, um, it's actually funny. Um, the I always say, like, all my friends and family, they always hear me say, like, one of these days it's going to quit being 1968. And that's going to be, like, this totally destabilizing event in our culture. And, you know, all but my closest friends and family know, know they're all like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I would have been the same way, except for researching in the podcast. I got to 1968, and I'm like, this explains so much of what we're talking about now. You just change a couple words, and this is what we're arguing today. Well, there's some fascinating research uh, into the human mind that actually talks about why that is. And it's basically because, like, politically, according to, like, some psychologists or whatever – Politically, your opinions don't change unless something happens to you once you reach 28. And so, like, for a lot of people, 1968 would have been a, just a really traumatic year. So, like, their opinions never never really never, change. Never really modifies an opinion. What I find funny to me is the disconnect of the next generation of people who are kids. They, they weren't even alive. They weren't even alive in 19-whatever. And they're right. echoing the same theme of the 1968 anti-government. The government's cheating us. The government's always wrong. But they don't even actually understand where that traditional ideology of politics comes from. They're just echoing what they've been taught. And so it's not that it's wrong to me. It's interesting to engage with them and point out, like, that comes from this. So do we want to fix that or do we just want to sit and complain about that for another 50 years? Well, the thing is, to me, what's becoming apparent because of the virus, I mean, it's like if you don't fix it, you know. Yeah, I mean, for me, I always look at it as risk. I kind of explain it how I used to explain safety to people when I managed a warehouse. But when you do something that's unsafe, you don't have an accident every time. You open up the possibility more and more. So you can cruise and be fine where you're, where you're not behaving optimally. But eventually it will bite you if you continue to do that. And so I see a lot of this. Our government, we're riding from World War II. We were the preeminent power in world history, way above everybody, economically, militarily, scientifically. And we've been riding that for 70 years. We've been able to be in 
competent. We've been able to be schizophrenic because we have this huge wealth of resources. But we forget when you pop back 20 years before that in the Great Depression, America can collapse. It has collapsed. And so we kind of have forgotten that we're competing and we need to be good. And so we just kind of get used to it. And I think from Vietnam, right, we, instead of holding the people accountable, instead of having a real conversation about JFK and LBJ getting us into the war, instead of having a real conversation about turning to Nixon and him being a crook, we, instead of raising our bar and making it clear we're not going to accept this behavior, societally, we kind of accepted that bar and lowered what we expect from government, that they're always going to cheat us, opposed to we're always going to kick out cheaters. Like, it's a, it's well, a, we can get used to it. Yeah, and what even worries me is, like, so going going to college like I did to study history, I, I encountered, you know, younger and younger people. And what worries me is their politics. Like, how, <laughs> well, no, like, how, how it's really, it's either really far right or really far yeah, left. It's polarized. It, I mean, it's they're really high. scary. Like, I don't know in your school, but the thing I think back is, is how many times was I told to make an opinion, and how many times was I supposed to do a statistical analysis of a subject? One, exactly. maybe, from one teacher, I was supposed to get evidence and present it. Other classes, I had classmates who would go to Wikipedia, pick a few random sites for it, throw it in their paper, and it passed, and they wrote an opinion paper that usually met the teacher's opinion. A. And I'm like, this isn't good. You, nobody requires this in a workplace. Well, actually, the the funny thing to me is, like, I have a, a funny story about, well, it's not funny, but a story about how I even found out what Wikipedia was, which is, like, um, I had a professor, and he said, do not use Wikipedia as a source. And he kept repeating that over and over again. Like, I was like, what is Wikipedia? What is Wikipedia? And, <laughs> And I went back, and this is this is how long ago it was. I actually, I didn't have a smartphone, so I went back to my apartment and found Wikipedia and looked at it. And I was like, okay, let's try this. And so I punched in, like I punched up the history of Metallica, which mm-hmm. I found to be totally encyclopedic and amazing. And yep. obviously, somebody who wrote that, you could tell there was people who wrote that that knew who the knew those people, like they. Personally knew him. Yeah. You could tell that. And then I punched up like the history of the British Empire. And here I was and I'm like, this is wrong. <laughs> like, what this is... I mean, to me I don't I I think Wikipedia is amazing. I just take it for what it is. It's crowdsourcing. You're asking basically a bunch of people to tell you the information. Don't use it as a primary source. But if you want to know some date or something, it's probably got it right on there real quick. Right. In general, but, I find that it's usually accurate. It's just sometimes it omits stuff. Sometimes it has parts that are obviously political, but it's probably more unpolitical than news sources because they're also political. Exactly. And you're right. I, I was watching Sunday, and I usually watch the morning shows. I, I have a hard time watching the, like, evening personalities. They just – none of them appease to me. So I'll watch, like, the morning – you know, Sunday morning shows. And it was just funny. My wife's sitting there, and I'm watching it, and I'm, you open up, and Trump is, is a completely destroying America, basically, phrase opening. You know, that's what he did. And then you change it over to the other channel. And Trump had a great speech. And you're like, 
how could they be talking? They're not even talking about the same thing, yet they're covering the same event. Like, it's baffling. And the thing that I think, well, the thing that is just, I guess the thing that I just really look at, and I just think about maybe more than a lot of people, is like, in a little while, be it a couple of months or, what, few years, Trump isn't going to matter. And beyond that, like, I got news for you. We as a species are going to outlive this country. You know, it's going to happen. Most most likely. (laughs) You know. I just really wish wish the news was less, more newsy. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I think the thing for me and how I think of it is is a weird subject. Go on this tangent for a second. It's like writing screenplays. So when you watch a bad screenplay, they tell you what they're doing. I have gun. I shoot, right? A good one shows you, right? And so when you watch news, you'll watch. They frame it initially before they've even told you the subject. They'll have the framing words, destructive, racist, whatever, and then they tell you the thing. So you're already led to an opinion, opposed to giving you the opinion and leading you to the answer. And so, to me, that's what they need to do more of, like, Trump had a speech. Does it do this or that? And here's some evidence to support it or something. But they don't. You can tell immediately from the first three words, before they describe the event, how it's going to be. Like, what they're trying to tell you is convey. You don't even need to listen to the rest of the story. Trump bad, Trump good. And I challenge people. Well, even you you can look at the thing on the – you can look at the thing on the, like the graphic on the screen, you know, if it's CNN or Fox or MSNBC yeah. or, you don't even need to care, I mean, you know. And I, you know, I, probably from debating with my dad, it used to steal my ideas and make me argue the other way, but I, I challenge people, if you're, if you hate Trump, come up with five things that the Trump administration, and you cannot convince me that the entire federal government hasn't done anything positive, that's positive. And that will reflect the type of news you're watching. You're not watching news that is giving you a spectrum. They're not telling you good stories. They're only framing negative stories. And if you think he's the greatest thing since, you know, cut bread, tell me the things as failings. Give me five failings of why the country isn't in an amazing position strategically, economically, whatever. And so, like, think about it critically. Because the part that bothers me is you can't hold people accountable. And this is politics process improvement at work personal. You can't hold accountable to achieve bigger goals unless you're honest about where you really currently are. Like, I don't go to the gym. That's why I'm probably, you know, getting out of shape. Not, well, if the bus ran near me, then I'd be able to do it. You know, you have to really get down to the root, the base. Here's where I really honestly am and where I perform and then work your way up and strive for accomplishment. But when you just frame it as, the reason we don't succeed is Donald Trump, like you said earlier. He'll be gone. Those voters and Americans will still be here. We'll still be arguing over the same thing. The only difference is the parties will keep switching back and forth. But it's just it, that's the part that polarizes me that I have trouble with when I'm talking to people. Right. I mean, I think we've it's like we're predetermining winners and losers before you oh, are yeah. not. Not winners and losers, besides, that's what I meant to say. We're predetermined, sorry. 
that's the tribal part. Then you then you view the opponents, right? You let other side, and I'll use the anti-Trumpers because that's what we have right now. You're viewing all of the problems with our country because of Trump. But like you said, when he changes everything, just about everything is going to be the same besides him being gone. We're going to be in the same positions as a country. We haven't overcome anything, and hating him isn't an alternative. And you can flip it around to Obamacare. Republicans had a decade to come up with an alternative. You can hate it all you want, but you have to offer something. Right. You're right. But they motivate you. You come out and vote. You click on TV. You do those things for these polarized issues, but you don't you don't act on the base things, right? Are they taking a bunch of money correctly? That should what get you angry, not whether they tweet at two in the morning with something dumb. Although I would prefer that our president doesn't tweet at two in the morning with something dumb. Well, that's the. I mean, I think that what? Okay, I'm a little bit or. I find myself being a little left of center in this country. And the thing that Donald Trump has gotten me to think is maybe, you know, the, the maybe the guys who wrote the anti-federalist papers have a point. And maybe their point was, right? Maybe their point was, why does, why does one person have to have all this power? You know, like, but we view a lot of power on the president that the president doesn't actually have. The common thing when you read like the biographies of presidents is their first week, them realizing they're not a king. Like we we associate the economy with the president. The, the president does almost nothing for the economy. The House of Representatives does all the taxation and different stuff that affects the economy. Right. So. We have, we, we talk about foreign affairs, but the Senate declares war, but they've given up that ability for 70, since Vietnam, right? They've decided that they don't actually have to hold the president accountable for it. Or they'll give George W. Bush a war on terror. That's a concept, not a country. That's not a war. That's a blank I don't know, to do whatever you want. I don't know about you, but I think that's going to be a problem later. I think the fact that you can let the president, the president can just go to war whenever the hell he wants and oh, for it, however long he wants. <laughs> We decoupled the checks and balances of that whole issue, right? And it, it exactly. We, that's how we end in these endless wars, right? We don't. We associate the president. The president's kind of locked in, right? You're running the military. You don't want to kind of run a war, so you go all in on the war. The people controlling whether we're out at war. We shouldn't associate with the president. We should associate with our senators. Why are we still at war? That those is like we like one of the things to me is that people. Because of how politics is portrayed, people fundamentally yeah. don't understand the responsibilities of each part of government, which is a lot of the way I find that people start to lose faith, is that they feel like it's a Democrat, Republican, they do whatever they want, things don't change, but they don't really understand how the system was initially designed. The president is negotiator, is wars, is executing the federal government. The Senate is, is agreeing to wars, agreeing to treaties. And the things that affect the whole country, like his appointments, and then the House is taxation, economy, passions of the people. But because we have these polarized parties that the other side is evil and we have to never not vote for our side, we get locked into this Democrat or Republican rather than you're going to be a senator. How are you on foreign affairs and judicial matters or whatever committee you want to be on? 
We just don't think about it as a job. We think about it in politics, and it distracts us from, like, you're supposed to do blank. Why isn't blank done? I don't care about this other political issue. Right. And I, I don't know. I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that that in itself would be an interesting podcast to, to think about, is how in the world did this happen? Yeah, but it's, it's gradual. I have no idea. Even all the history I know, I'm like, I don't. There's no moment. Well, my my own personal, it's not a guess. It's it's a fact. Is is that um, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, greatly expanded the presidential powers, and they've been expansive ever since then. And also, I think, and also, I think some of it. If you look at, um, I don't know, if you've ever had a chance to look at an archive's death records, like to look at a, uh, a given population's birth and death records, if you will, okay? The one thing you notice over the decades is population, like your population um, essentially, exp- not expands, but grows older pretty much at the same time. So you'll have a cohort of people that'll live to their 60s. And you'll have a cohort of people that'll live to their 70s. And But it's a giant cohort, right? And so with that, you have to think, well, that that's changing life expectations. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like if, you, if you're expecting to live to 45, you're, you're going to think your life is going to be different then if you're expecting to live to be 95 or 85 or something, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and in history, that this is a mo- this is a recent event, right? Well, very much so. Stuff. This yeah. is just the last hundred years. Like I was reading a book that was saying that the peasants, the Irish peasants of the 1800s, had an average life expectancy in Britain, the Isles, of 19 years. Jeez. And I was like, well, that's a different life. <laughs> it, it changes everything, right? Totally everything. <laughs> Going older changes everything. I mean, even workplace and you know, stuff, Social Security was built when you lived till you're maybe sixty. Now we're living to seventy, eighty, right? But we we take it as an entitlement, so we don't reevaluate what that means if somebody's still in the workforce or try to think how do we transition people from physical jobs to you know less physical jobs, because obviously you might be able to do construction until you're 40, but we're still going to need you to do a job until you're 60. You're probably not going to be built in the field. How do we create an economy that accommodates this? And we've never even, like you said, brought it up as a, a thing, let alone the, the outputs of it. Well, here's the, I mean, here's the thought. I, I Here's the thought I've been having for, for eons um, ever since I did this project. Um, one of the things that you notice Starting around, I, I guess, like the 70s, the 1970s. Um, so before the 1970s on intake forms, like doctor, you know, whatever, like when you fill out for the doctor, whatever that's called, what you notice is they're saying, like, how many drinks do you drink per day, right? And then around yeah. the 70s, right, and then around the 70s and 80s, they, how many drinks do you drink per week? You know, and and now I think I had to fill. I went to the doctor recently. I think it was how many drinks do you drink a month? Yeah. <laughs> you know the 
the fact of the matter is the less alcohol you drink, usually the the better, you know, the longer your life is going to be. Um, within moderation. seems to be good for you if you have a little bit, but not if you have a huge what? amount. No, I, I, know what, I know what you're saying. I mean, I used to drink with, you know, I used to bend the elbow myself. But, I mean, I'm you're just saying. you out. It, it's not good for your health. No, it's not. And if you're, if it's such an integrated part of society that you're even saying, how many drinks do you drink a day on the doctor intake form? You know, just saying. You know, you gotta live though. I mean. Well, right. But I mean, that's, that's a marker. I'm saying like for this population, it's gonna live longer. That's what we're asking. You know, the fact that that question now, instead of, like, one question is, like, 40, and we have an entire science. I mean, medical system's amazing. We we can poo-poo what we want about it politically, but, like, modern yeah. medicine is amazing in so many ways. Like, I just find myself astounded by things people think I'm silly, but, like, just the fact that you can do, like, an orthoscopic knee clean-out or just these little things, and they're mundane. I'm like, you know, you got shot as a soldier and you died of gangrene most of the time and now it's like surgery no big deal these other things are crazy technologies that scan your body and we take it all for granted there was a there was a king i mean this is a king during the middle ages and i forget i wish i could remember his name for you but there was a king during the middle ages who literally died because one of his teeth essentially abscessed and it created this huge problem and now you you would just turn up at the doctor or the dentist and he was a king yeah yeah i mean (laughs) we we have this hollywood i have this ongoing conversation with a friend about things things in hollywood that are not true like cars don't explode when they crash and all sorts of stuff but we have this like romanticized middle ages the middle ages was terrifyingly horrible for kings, even. I mean, you're talking kings, anybody in the population. And we have this, like, oh, it's Monty Python, you clack around, and there's some peasants, and they seem to be fine. And I'm like, there is no other point in history I want to be in alive. It is amazing here. And especially and in that's America just, now, you know. Right. And you're talking, and you're just, even when you talk about the Middle Ages, we're just talking about the stuff that we can prove. Like, that yeah. we can prove. Think about like rich people for most of history. Well, but no, think about the fact that that your average king or your average whatever probably thought about, probably believed in dragons. Oh, right? yeah, there was no science. Whatever you were taught, <laughs> right? No scientific method. I mean, what I think about is like old ancient stuff, right? Where like yeah. a tsunami takes out a city without the scientific stuff we know today. What would you think if, like, giant wave took out a city and you're the, like, lone survivor? Like, God hates me. Like, how? what else would you possibly come to? I mean, even stuff today we don't understand. We have a hard time grasping in the logical way. But, like, a thousand years ago, most of the world has no science. At least, most, at least most of our relatives, right? I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what's. That's what's so incredible to me is you look at like the, you know, the the Muslim, you know, the the oh, big Empire. cities and yeah, 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 the Muslim caliphates. Man, yeah. they, this science was way, just way cooler. <laughs> I mean, 
It's amazing how, how, especially because a lot of history comes from colonial rediscovery, how certain things get like, they're dumb because of X, right? It, but when you actually look at it today where we're a little less biased by colonial thought processes, we can see these amazing ways they adapt to life or evidence of things. I mean, one of the ones to me is if you didn't come up with writing, you don't exist in history. But like, you have these giant like societies that were massive. Like you have Rome and you have all the Gauls and all the Gauls had different societies and cultures, but they didn't have a writing that passed down to us. So we basically just pretend nobody lived there until the Romans appeared. But we do that even, you know, with America. We discovered it. Nobody was there beforehand. <laughs> there wasn't a big major city that we can't, don't know anything about. And... Or that, like, my favorite one is the Spanish conquering the Aztecs with a hundred men. I'm like, yes, with a hundred men in three nations that they allied with, they conquered the Aztecs. Well, also it was their germs and, and. Yeah, that's right. That's... <laughs> That would be a good hypothetical is if, if what if smallpox went the other way and 90% of Europe, Asia, Africa died rather than North America? I mean, it's just a, right. I mean, you do the one on, on influenza, which is terrible enough, but the, the estimations of smallpox is 90% of the population was killed by the diseases and smallpox groups with other diseases of North America when we came here. I mean, right. Or like you, one of the things I'm thinking about is, and one of the things I'm thinking about is, this is wacky. Like the best, maybe not the best, but the theory that I happen to like is that the Spanish flu actually started in Kansas. And, highly possible. And it was knocking around Kansas for basically for God knows how long. I mean, but here's the thing though. If Woodrow Wilson had not had a bee in his bonnet about, you know, involving us in a European war, totally different. It's, entire, it's entirely possible that, as weird as this sounds, it's entirely possible that the Spanish flu might have knocked itself around and eventually burned itself out, and it just Should wouldn't have Kansas gotten flu? on the radar. Should it be the Kansas flu? Well, That's the thing. It would have been the Kansas flu then. Well, the reason it was called the Spanish flu is because it got to, uh, oh, there's a couple of theories. It got to a town that was in France that was sort of near Spain. And so that town decided we're going to call it the Spanish flu because we don't want people thinking that we're, ter you know, we're sick with it. Maybe that's the, the legacy of politics. You get the sickness and you're like, well, we're close enough. Let's blame those people a bit. This is their problem. But the other the other thought is that Spain was neutral, and so in World War One Spain was neutral, and so Spain in Europe was basically the only country that was open and honest about its, or relatively open and honest about its uh, Spanish flu impairment, if you will. Yeah, they're reporting true numbers where the war powers are like, no, we're fine. That's the only the other well, side. Well, so but that's what's so strange is that. Uh, the, so, the Sp at the time the Spanish flu happened, right, it was essentially cutting edge science that you could die of, that you could die of the flu, number one. And it was cutting edge science as well that, so like people thought, just basically people thought that, uh, 
Spanish humans were different, were biologically different from German humans or Chinese humans or whatever. And this wasn't, to be clear, this wasn't like, this wasn't, you know, the most racist person. Exactly. To be clear, it wasn't like this was the most racist person you know. It was literally everybody. (laughs) You went to university. Right, exactly. Exactly. So one of the weirdest things about the Spanish flu was, like, if you happen to drop dead in a place where they thought, oh, only only these people can get the Spanish flu and not you, you're of the good stock, so you died of the cold, right? Congratulations, you died of the cold. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Yep. Or like, okay, one of the, okay, this is really strange. This is bizarre. So in San Francisco, okay, the, there were untold numbers of Chinese and Japanese folks that were dying of something that later humans, later people, decided was probably the Spanish flu. But they don't count in the official Spanish flu death. So, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to look back at that stuff and see if maybe it wasn't something different or was it? I mean, it's probably the Spanish flu, but it could have just been something else. Well, they, but the, see, that's the thing. It's like, and the, the thing, the other thing is it wasn't even, they don't even really think it was the flu. Um, the modern folks, the modern epidemiologists, et cetera, yeah. don't even really think it was the flu. They, they, they don't know what it was. The Spanish flu. I have not done nearly as much as you, but when I read some of the symptoms, I'm like, that doesn't sound like the flu. Like, the flu doesn't cause a seizure. The flu doesn't cause, it <laughs> you does. know. And, and the bell curve of, like, who it affected, where it affected people in the prime as equal as people outside. And I was like, this is not standard flu. Even if it's the flu, it's very different. Well, right. But, you know, I mean, they didn't have, I mean, they didn't really have, Anywhere near the tools that we have today. Oh, oh I mean, yeah. But speaking of today, nothing, what, are the, what are some of the similarities you see from that to today? Oh my God, I see so many similarities. Um, one of the big similarities that I see, honestly, is like um, certain people who shall remain nameless, uh, who are in positions of power, are saying that you know the the good people can't die of COVID-19. That's well, actually a it'll thing. It'll just go away. That's how yeah, that works. It'll just go away. It's harmless. Um, or, like, you hear, like, um, what was the, um, like, you, you hear, like, this idea that in my city, okay, you have this idea that because black people or, or Hispanics or whoever are the people in the service jobs that have to be around people. Like they have to, they're the delivery drivers, et cetera, right? Yep. So because of that, they're the people getting the COVID-19. Well, you can be, you can be a college graduate in this town with a good job and, you know, good, you know, good clean bill of mental health. And you can actually believe that only black people or Hispanic people or whoever else can get COVID-19 and white people can't get it. <laughs> yeah, my, my my brother does sales and he was 
mentioning that Brazil was kind of like, oh, we won't get it. That's a rich person disease. And that was their general right. attitude until it hit them. And it's just, right. it's, it's one of those things. I mean, it's, it's, I forget the term in psychology, but like threats that are immediate and normalized, we're like, whatever, driving a car, safe. Threats that are abstract and outside of the norm become enormous. And wherever you place things, like, that's how you react to it. The normal everyday thing, you're just like, I'm going to get in my car and drive. But this other thing might be, you know, you have almost no chance, terrorism, almost no chance of it actually affecting you, becomes this enormous policy, but you can't get traction on something like COVID that feels more normal. You go out in life and everything feels normal, so it's like, oh, I think I'm fine. Well, and here's here's a, a big difference, I think. I mean, here's here's what's gonna how it's gonna go down. Um, you could die of the Spanish flu in public, like you could be out and about mm-hmm. and just drop dead of the Spanish flu, right? I think in the day and age of Twitter and Instagram and God knows what else, I think if you started doing that with COVID nineteen. Things would change. Well, I, right? I don't understand from day one. We got these news arguing over masks that you're either an insane person or it's going to prevent COVID. Why didn't right. we just put cameras and interviews doctors in the hospitals about it and show packed hospitals and show the effect? Because you're right, only a segment of the population sees it. And that's such a point that we didn't come in and be like, this is what our hospital looks like near you, like your local news. Our hospital's packed. The doctors are working 16-hour days. Here's what's happening. But they didn't show that. They got caught up arguing over the political and never really covering the thing. Well, I think – so one of the things in my own life that made me realize, oh, this is real. Is like I not that it wasn't real before, but like that this is really serious. Was I was looking on my phone at this video of like a hospital in Italy, and they were putting people on the floor. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, that is that's amazing. It's hard because it's because everything's so polarized and half true. Where do you turn to get like? the honest truth of something, right? What source would you give? It either falls into your political lens where you take and take your media, or it doesn't, and you're going to follow that path. Like, and also, like, really a, a base root of, like, here's the thing that's happening to the U.S., think what you want. And also, like, if you're of an age or you're of a, of a circumstance and, like, nothing really terrible ever happened to you, and you don't know anybody that anything bad has ever happened to, yeah, I think for like, me, like, my dad was, well, he was alive. He passed, passed away quite a few years ago. While he was alive, he was a, a high-threat immune-suppressed person. So a lot of these things were normal for me to be like, oh, this disease. And I think with COVID, different than the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu killed people in their prime. COVID, from what I've looked at, at the National Health Service and different things, it's relatively mundane. It's like a kind of more dangerous flu. But you can spread it easily for days to people who are not. And that's the huge risk if you're in the prime, because that's where a lot of these cases right now are coming from. And people well, actually, prime, not actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. I have friends that are – my sister's a nurse, and I have friends that are, you know, nurses and mm-hmm. things like that. And I know a guy who works at the CDC. And anyway, 
it seems like the the real maybe the underlying problem that's sleeping under the rug here is essentially that even if you quote survive COVID nineteen, right, you're still going to have underlying health issues for the rest of your life possibly that are quite serious. And yeah, it's possible. I feel like there's a lot more commonalities with that. There's so I, I was reading recently that. There's a lot more people dying of strokes that have COVID antibodies than from lung involvement. So there's still correlations, though. I'm more convinced when they're clear causation. Well, they could true. be dying of strokes because of our media. <laughs> sometimes I feel like that's how I'm going to go, where I'm like trying to not throw something at my TV. Probably doesn't right. help my blood pressure. But, I mean, for me, there could be more to it, and I leave that possibility open. But I think, to me, what I see is that risk of when you aren't directly involved, right? When likelihood, and you can, you can look at the statistics and see the likelihood if you're in your prime and you get COVID is you'll be fine. But what the real risk is is that you might kill your grandmother. And when you don't really take that risk to heart, that's really where it becomes dangerous to me is where you become a super spreader, and spread it to 200 people because you just want to disregard it completely. And so that's where I'm like, it's the, the risk isn't put on you. You disregard it, but somebody else is there. Cause I'm, I'm careful with it. I'm not personally very worried. I'm in my prime. I don't have any health complications, but I'm very conscious that I have coworkers. I know people, I have friends that could be high, that are high risk and this would be life threatening. And so for me, that's really what you have to intake with it is, is that most of this action is not to prevent that it's going to wipe out 90% of the population. It's that you don't want to spread it to the people you care about. And if you're one of those people, you really want to isolate because it is, uh, it is a life or death thing for somebody who's immune compromised. You know, like I said, my dad had this. He'd get a cold. I'd have it for five days. He'd have it for three months. Something like this could be, could be deadly. And so you just really have to take that that secondary step assisted risk to heart and be conscientious of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But then yeah, I will go to the store and I watch people touch their mask, touch the ground, touch their mask, touch the ground, touch their mask, touch something. And I'm like, well, that mask is only going to guarantee that you get sick because you're not using it right. Yeah. One of, one of my friends actually brought up a good point. And he said, like, you know, there's a couple of things here. One, colleges haven't, like, got, you know, nobody's gotten in this with college dorms yet, number one. Yeah, but num- exactly. But number one, but he said number two, like, think about daycare centers. Like, that's going to spread this around. Yeah, ask any parent with with person <laughs> in daycare, right? And they get every yeah. kid. No, I mean, it's, like, it's tough because there isn't an answer. Like, people will just assume, well, there'll be a vaccine soon. I'm like, uh, there's plenty of diseases. We never get there. Plus, as I told my wife, I do not want to be the first person to take a rush vaccine. I'm just putting that out there. I'll pass on the first batch, <laughs> just like I'm exactly. using car. I'm not going to take the first engine they make. I'll take the second one. So it's just, <laughs> it's just tough with it. Like, I don't know that it's gone. And the other part with economics is we feel fine right now economically because they've floated us. We're about at the end of this month to watch our economy tank. And they could print money for another month. That exposes risk of a total collapse. 
So we can't indefinitely do that. We're going to have really hard economic decisions in the next six months that are just going to hammer us. And I don't want to, you know, people have trouble comparing economy to COVID because death and living, but both have (laughs) huge effects on people's lives. If you die, obviously that's the greatest effect. But if you're completely unemployed, your business and your family ends on the street, that's an effect too. And so we're going to have these two huge crises, and sometimes they're not going to cooperate, and we're going to have some really hard choices. One of the things, like, that doing the Spanish flu and talking about COVID-19 with my podcast, one of the things, like, that I changed my mind on, actually, when I first started doing the podcast about when I first started talking about COVID-19, I was I was really like, okay, we need to try and stay home and we need to try and like all that. And the reason why that I was like that is COVID-19 is to the best of our knowledge it's new, so we don't really know like it could evolve, it could change, it could yeah. you know, whatever. But now I'm kind of thinking now this is where I am today. I'm kind of like, well, okay, I personally don't want to take a mask off and go into a restaurant and eat. That's not anything I want to do, okay? Uh, A buddy of mine who works at the CDC, or I don't remember if it was him or one of the people I know who's a nurse or whoever, but somebody told me you can get COVID-19 from smelling urine of somebody who has it. random. Right. So like I'm not I'm not about to go into a public bathroom, right? So, but I'm but I'm also going at some point. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know if you're going to wear a mask and and gloves and whatever and just go about your life, or you know, like in two years, are we all going to live at? Are we all going to work at home and? And eat cabbage because our economy is so depressed. We only can grow exactly. And here's the, I mean, it's amazing how many conversations I've had in the past, what, since February? About how long do you think it's going to be before people start climbing up their yards? <laughs> I, I mean, I've been to the grocery store. I, this is the economics part of me watching. They fill up the shelves, but if you look at the diversity of items, already the produce is less diverse. Like, so I'm the actually, supply chain already is lagging from the stress. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those people that is at risk because I have neurological involvement and stuff, so I have to, yeah, you know, whatever. So I haven't been to a grocery store in God. <laughs> well, then you haven't noticed. You no. might notice when you go on Amazon and things are like 900 years. Well, one of the things that one of the things that I had to figure out real quick was um, if they say like if they give me a number. Like only ten available. I'm like, I'm not buying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the curtains have been rolled back on Amazon because they put a number up and they're sourcing it. They don't actually have ten sitting on a shelf. They just feel they can source ten for you, and then a hundred get bought, and they're like, well, the other ninety don't exist, so that's going to be seventy-two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, bought, that's the supply chain lagging from all these people not working. Like, people pretend there's not an effect. It's floated because you have income. But the economy is essentially 
the amount of things produced. That's the size of the economy. So when you unemploy a third of people, there's now a third less things. And so the money is still the same. So you're going to spend more money to be the person to get the remaining things, which means we're likely to start seeing inflation after we we take away the extra unemployment money and other things and the supply chain slows down, prices are going to go up. And it's going to be well, tough. You were asking one of the similar what are the similarities between COVID and um, Spanish flu. One of the main differences that I really look at and I really notice hard is not everybody in 1918 was somewhat adjacent to a farm. Okay, no, for sure, mm. but a whole lot were. Right. Yeah, a whole lot of folks were less complex. And that's one of the things like I'm thinking is, you know, if we end up doing this for more than say a few months, a few like a year, like a year from now, okay, if we're still doing this a year from now as a people, uh, unless, unless they literally start floating people, I don't know what people are going to do. I mean, you'll figure it out. What's going to happen is the complexity is going to slow down, right? We're going to we're going to regress back. So you're saying adjacent to farms, but there's also the supply chain element, which is you probably bought most of that stuff from a specific location. You bought your car from Detroit. Everything about it was probably made in Detroit. You got your food. I live in Washington. Our bread baskets over the mountain. Georgia's got its own place. You probably bought a lot of produce locally. Today, a lot of the apples we grow in Washington get shipped out of Washington and we import other apples. And so as this breaks down, we're going to have what's available locally. And it's going to become more and more expensive to buy stuff from other places. And it's going to, you're going to have less choice, less diversity of products. America's going to slide back from this opulence a little back to a little bit in our history and regress. And we are, we, the whole stimulus package is wrong because we gave people money when they were fine. And now as the economy's tanking, we have no more money to give, or we can well, hold, no, different, well, here, hold different podcasts, but we can print more money, and that <laughs> is a huge risk to keep doing that. Well, and this is a podcast we could have, but, I mean, it's not – well, here's the here's the real risk, okay, to me, right? Um, do you – it's kind of like – when you're choosing what to do, right? And nothing, everything has a downside. So what is this, you know what I'm saying? It's all trade-offs. Like, Economics is about this. It's all trade-offs. There's no, there's no answer. There's trade-offs. Exactly. There's trade-offs. And the thing I wonder, like the thing I've been thinking on, and this sounds kind of silly, but the thing I've been thinking on is in my neighborhood, right, I've got cars. I've got people in my neighborhood that have a job. They're not unemployed, so they have a job. Mm-hmm. But they've ne- they haven't left their house except to walk in like months. Yeah. Well, I had this conversation with my wife. We have one of our cars that was coming up, and I'm like, "Why don't we just trade it in?" And but <laughs> fine with one. But my thought is, my thought is, honest to God. You know, honestly, what would happen if the the office, you know, the the people running offices are like, 
hey, we can do this from home. <laughs> I had that conversation about where we were like, maybe when this is all over, we'll telecommute once a day. I'm like, four out of five days a week. That's what I want. I think, I think when this, it. honestly, you know what I think? It'll change it. I yeah, think, you're right. I think when this is over, I honestly do. I think when this is over, you're going to have lots of people that just telecommute all the time, number one. And number two, the thing, the other thing is, we haven't had sports in this country for, I don't know how long. I need some football. <laughs> right? Well, that's what I'm saying. But people are going to get used to, you know, doing other things. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I always laugh because they bring up the sports. And they're like, well, maybe we'll come back and do this. I'm like, if you're not careful, your sport will be what box. Boxing was America's sport for 150 years. That was America's well, sport. It, it wasn't baseball. It was boxing events. And, so uh, I'm a, no, yeah. So I'm a big hockey fan. And one thing I know, because I'm also a history nerd, is that all those old timey hockey arenas were all originally boxing places. Were they? Boxing. Yeah. Yeah. Mark and forces at work. Exactly. In fact, the, the Rangers, the New York Rangers was actually started because they needed they needed another tenant because you couldn't you know boxing couldn't pay the bills anymore all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just I mean so I mean okay like you think about you were talking about football right? Yep. I I know you know being that you're a football fan I know you know that that at least in the public imagination football has dramatically declined in the last, I don't know, Somewhat. 10. That might be politics. Might All the be. people I know that are hardcore football fans or enjoyed it for a long period of time still enjoy it. It was kind of some people that entered peripherally, you know, showed up for the Super Bowl that were like, ew, football. I think they did a lot right. in this area, especially they did a lot too for the youth safety, which I think was a big move that they improved the helmets, took out a lot of the contact and did a lot of that. But yeah, the high school teams still seem to have plenty of people trying to be on the football team. I'm more a hockey baseball guy myself, but eh. I, I played baseball, but uh, I just have trouble watching it. I don't know how a game lasts four and a half hours. A baseball games like an hour of content. They didn't used to last. No, that's another I know. They didn't used to last four and a half. <laughs> no, a high school baseball game, nine innings, same rules. It's like an hour, maybe an hour twenty. MLB game, yeah. four and a half hours. And what's funny is I will watch it for an hour, and then I'm like, ah, uh, I think this game should be over, and it's like the third inning. What's crazy like, to me? <laughs> what's crazy to me is like I was, I was going through some old VCR tapes. Um, and I, I went through this phase where I recorded baseball games when I was going to be out. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, oh, my God, baseball games used to be two and a half hours long. And they were like 100 pounds lighter. <laughs> I mean, no, but in my, in you know, 10 years, 10, 15 years, baseball was two and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> and now, yeah. Anyway, uh, I gotta anyway, get Jacob. going, but it's all right. been awesome, and uh, we'll do this again. 